This is episode 51 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and I hope you all enjoyed episode 50 of learning nothing about dysphagia and everything about me, but um, I'm glad you guys enjoyed that, I suppose. <laughs> but back to what we're really here for. I'm so excited for this episode. Um, this is an episode with Dr. Susan Butler, and she is one of my fees idols, dysphagia idols, I don't know, research idols, something like that. But um, when I was at the Dysphagia Research Society meetings earlier this year, I was, it was late. It was the first night we had all just gotten in. It was like nine o'clock at night and a bunch of us were getting ready to go to dinner. Um, and the buddies we were with said, you know, okay, there's a few other people that are going to join and oh, great. So we got to dinner, ordered a glass of wine. You know, everybody's finally getting around to introducing themselves. And I'm talking to this lady about my son and she's talking about her son. And finally I was like, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to be rude, but what? I didn't catch your name. <laughs> and she was like, oh, my name is Susan, Susan Butler. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so I had no idea who she was in real life. And it was, she's such a kind and sweet woman. And I was so grateful to have had dinner with her that night. And so grateful that she agreed to come on the podcast because I love her work. It's so relatable. I think it's a lot of questions we've, we all have. Uh, so hopefully you guys learned something from this episode. So... Uh, Dr. Susan Butler is an associate professor in the Department of Otolaryngology, Center for Voice and Swallowing Disorders at Wake Forest University Health Sciences in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. She is a researcher and publisher in Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders and has won the Scientific Presentation Award of the Dysphagia Research Society several times. Dr. Butler's NIH-funded research targeted identifying the range of normal swallowing function across the lifespan as assessed endoscopically, assessing the associations between swallowing function and tongue strength, tongue composition, pharyngeal strength, and overall functioning. Dr. Butler has held over 50 seminars nationwide, training individuals in fees, and has provided hundreds of clinical and scientific presentations on advanced dysphagia evaluation and management. Dr. Butler chaired the ASHA work groups of document development for video fluoroscopic procedures and swallowing and the revision of clinical indicators for instrumental assessment of dysphagia. She also served on the ASHA working group on endoscopy, the board of the Dysphagia Research Society, and on the executive board as the vice chair of the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders. So without further ado, I hope you all enjoy this episode with Dr. Susan Butler. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, Susan. Hey, Teresa. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me on your podcast series. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for joining us. It is definitely my pleasure. I love opportunities to talk about the clinical relevance of the research. Yeah. So this is a really nice opportunity. And we love to hear the researchers talk about that too. So it's, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a perfect yes. marriage. So in the beginning, I gave a little blurb about who you are, but if no one has any idea who Dr. Susan Butler is, maybe you can fill us in. 
Okay. Well, I originally started in acute care doing fees and modifieds and worked for four years as a clinician and decided to go back and get my master's or excuse me, my doctoral degree because of all the clinical questions that were coming up. And I never thought I would want to be a researcher, but I just was plagued with wanting answers to these clinical questions. And so I did go back and get my doctoral degree and then have spent the rest of my career still seeing patients, but doing research related to clinical questions. So awesome! what has brought me to this point. And what's a big, what's your big questions? I guess what's something that most of your research is based on? Yes. Well, thank you. So when I was at UNC hospitals back in the early 90s, fresh out of master's program, the theme of the time was any aspiration is bad. I look back to how we diagnosed and treated patients then, and I feel sad about that in many ways because we were very restrictive in our diet recommendations. We were even taught at that time that if we saw penetration, that it had to go somewhere and that somewhere was with gravity and that was going to be down in the airway. So we even restricted many times off of penetration, restricted diet. So I'm even embarrassed to share that at this stage, but that is how it started. But what would occur was, is some patients were non-compliant with our diet recommendations. Maybe that was just because they were stubborn or because they tried to follow the recommendations, but it was just too restrictive for their quality of life. And so back in the early 90s, patients did stay in the hospital longer than they do now. And I had the opportunity to follow patients who continued to drink thin liquids, despite our recommendations otherwise. And many of them did not get pneumonia. And so that went against what I was being taught to some degree. Now, of course, we did see pneumonia from time to time. It wasn't like it did not occur and that I wouldn't want to mislead anyone by any stretch. But we were surprised at the number of patients that did not develop pneumonia and um, pleasantly surprised. So that certainly was a huge question in my mind. And then Langmore published the big article on predictors of pneumonia And that certainly started to answer a lot of questions about patients that have good oral hygiene, that don't have um, good oral hygiene, patients who are dependent on others to feed them, those who are walking and ambulatory, all really play into that predictor of who will go on to get to pneumonia. So that was part of it. The other thing that was interesting that me and my cronies, if you will, my colleagues, Jennifer Buckmeyer, Lisa Markley, Chrissy Brackett, Beth Cormel, we used to give a lot of food and liquid during the fees. And that's the beauty of fees is it's not a time-limited exam and you can give as much food and drink as you would like. And that was even our goal was to fatigue the patients and see the equivalent of an entire meal. So we just stumbled onto the finding that many patients would aspirate milk, but not aspirate water, or they would aspirate pudding and not aspirate applesauce, or they would aspirate ice cream, but not aspirate Italian ice. And so we're like, it's a dairy thing. And we would even write diet recommendations to exclude dairy products. And we had to work with our nutritionists, our dietitians to get ways of protein into the diet when we were excluding dairy products. 
but it was became a very real phenomena to us in that time. And we would just come back down into the office after a fees exam with like that guffaw of another one aspirated milk that didn't aspirate soda or didn't aspirate apple juice. And so I could not wait till I had the ability and the funding to research that question. And so in 2007 or 2006, I think, was the first study where we started to look at that question. All right. And what study was that? Well, that study wasn't published until 2009, but that was one of the first of four studies that we did looking at healthy adults, normal healthy adults, looking to see, first of all, what is normal penetration and aspiration potentially? And I should back up just a little bit. I had been teaching fees workshops from the mid-90s. Dr. Laymore had asked me to start doing fees workshops because there was such a demand for fees workshops at that time. And we would see people aspirate from time to time during the fees workshops. And so that's where the first question of normal aspiration came to my attention. I know that the radiologist used to say, oh yeah, everybody aspirates, but I would be like, yeah, what do you know? (laughs) (laughs) But they would be quite convicted of that. I think they were seeing that on like upper GI series and things like that. So in 2009, we published the first of a series of four papers looking at what is normal penetration, what is normal aspiration, and then looking at the milk and water question. So, and some other things. Yeah. What's the name of that paper, Susan? All right. That is the paper titled Flexible Endoscopic Evaluation of Swallowing in Healthy, Young, and Older Adults. And so in that study, we had 44 adults, 23 were younger adults, and 21 were older adults. The mean age of the young adults was 30 years, and the older adults was, the mean age was 75 years. And in that study, we did milk versus water. And we also looked at volume as it may predict penetration and aspiration. And so when we looked at the number of swallows that participants aspirated, it was only 7% of the swallows of the whole study that participants aspirated. So it was not a lot. It was only 7%, but it was more really than what had been reported at that day and time. Yeah. So, you know, I know we're talking about fees here, but what's interesting is you said your radiologists would say that sometimes people do aspirate, but I feel like one of the big gripes that a lot of people that work in acute care and do modifieds on a regular basis will say, as soon as the radiologist sees aspiration, they shut down the study. Mm -hmm. So this Mm -hmm. is interesting that, you know, not only is our field still, you know, struggling with this concept, but radiologists apparently are too. Yes, I hear that same thing. And in the beginning where I worked originally, that was certainly not the case. They were very comfortable with patients aspirating. However, I've heard the same thing where there are facilities where there's aspiration, they want to shut everything down, which defeats the purpose of why we're there. If we didn't already think they were aspirating, we wouldn't be there in the first place. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. So what did that study find about the differences between water and milk? Was there more with milk on that study? Yes. So that was the first study that highlighted that there was more aspiration on milk versus water and on the larger versus smaller boluses. Okay. We didn't elaborate that much in that study. It was just kind of a first, what we would call a pilot study. Cool. So then where'd you go after that? 
Then the next study we did was also published in 2009, and it was called Penetration and Aspiration in Healthy Older Adults is Assessed During Endoscopic Evaluation of Swallowing. So because we noticed in the first study that the young adults did not aspirate, it was just the older adults, and remember the mean age was 75, we chose this time to just concentrate on older adults. So we had 20 older adults with a mean age of 79 years. We were getting closer to 80 that time. And when we looked at the number of swallows that were aspirated in that cohort, it wasn't quite as high as the first cohort. It was the first cohort had 7% of their swallows were aspirated. The second cohort showed 4% of their swallows were aspirated. When we looked at the number of participants, it was 30% of the participants aspirated at some point in time during the study. So they may have aspirated only once. They may have aspirated up to four or five times. I will tell you the majority of the aspiration was only a one-time kind of thing. And then it typically... When we're talking about aspiration in healthy adults, it is typically trace. It is not gross aspiration. With that said, I have seen marked aspiration in a healthy adult, senior, but generally we're talking trace, like a pea-sized amount or just a thin trace down the anterior trachea if you're used to looking at peas. Okay. Do we have any, I guess, hypotheses for why it is the milk? Is it a dairy thing? Is that... That's a, that's a really great question. So... We've now finished four studies looking at healthy adults. And so in all four studies, we do see milk versus water. But in the third and the fourth study, we broke it down into skim milk, 2% milk, and whole milk versus water. And so we use the penetration aspiration scale, which is a great way in research to try to quantify penetration and aspiration. But in general terms... People aspirate most frequently on 2% milk, followed by whole milk, then skim milk, and then water. And we have seen that same trend where we were powered in two studies, and we've seen that same trend, though, in three studies. So it's that 2% milk. If you want to see someone aspirate, give them 2% milk. That's wild. That's so wild. wild. It is wild. And I don't know um, what the reason for that is. I've talked with a lot of people In terms of milk versus water, we do know that there's water receptors in our larynges and pharynges, and perhaps the actual water receptors are stimulated better with water and trigger swallow reflex better than with milk. It could be the viscosity or the fat content is just not perceived as well in the pharynx and the larynx, so the trigger is swallow trigger. The sensory motor loop is not as quick or as strong. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, at this stage, we just know it exists. Crazy. The other possibility is, and I just loved talking with some people at DR Dysphagia Research Society this past year, is that it could be that we're not detecting the water aspiration as well as the milk aspiration. So the, the milk, once it's aspirated, it may simply reflect light back better than water. So it's possible that we are missing aspiration on water and that the aspiration of water is as frequent as milk. I wouldn't rule that out at this stage. Interesting. That is a possibility. As a clinician, though, who's done over 13,000 fees, (laughs) I feel like I see the water aspiration. I see water aspiration, certainly, in patients. Yeah. But could we be missing it? It's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like a lot of times I rely on, you know, seeing the dye go down with the water. And I think, you know, that's how we detect aspiration. So 
I guess it's interesting to think that we could still be, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. And I think I should clarify, we do put green food coloring in the milk and the water. So it does have the dye that you're talking about. Yes. Wild. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And then as I said, if we weren't convinced enough from the uh, second and the third studies that the last study we completed was published just this year. And so the last study that we published was in a series of 203 healthy adults. That was the largest series. The title of that article is called Aspiration as a Function of Age, Sex, Liquid Type, Bolus Volume, and Bolus Delivery Across the Healthy Adult Lifespan. And so in, in that study, we looked at 203 adults from age 20 to 90, and we saw the same thing again. We saw aspiration more frequent in the older adults, 70 and above, that really, if you look at the figures in this published study, the penetration aspiration scale numbers, they just climb up markedly at 70 decade of life, Crazy. In, um, 80 to 80 to 90. Then also males were more likely to aspirate than females, which is a trend we've seen in all four studies. And then also the 2% being aspirated more than whole milk and skim and then water. So <laughs> That's just wild. Yeah. What was the third study, Susan? Okay, the third study, here it is. It's the effects of liquid type delivery method and bolus volume on penetration aspiration scores in healthy older adults during flexible endoscopic evaluation of swallowing. And all the results were pretty consistent with that one as well. Yes. So in that one, the mean age, we only had 14 subjects in that study. The mean age was 75 years. The number of swallows that were aspirated was 3% of the swallows were aspirated. But again, the kind of magic number of 30% of these participants aspirated at some point in time during the study. Crazy. Yes. Yeah. So do these answer your clinical questions that you had 10 years ago, or do you you think you're even more confused now? Well, I think what it provides is a more healthy, if you will, benchmark, more accurate benchmark of what normal swallowing is or can be, so that as a clinician, we have an accurate benchmark. You're more likely to under-manage a patient or over-manage a patient if we do not have an accurate benchmark. So we didn't have this when I started back in the day. And so now we still don't have everything answered by any stretch, but we do know the range of normal swallowing is broader than what we originally thought. And so I think it allows a clinician more clinical judgment. It's not as black and white. They aspirated, so I'm restricting. The questions change. The questions are, they aspirated this once, but if I keep giving this consistency, do they still keep aspirating or not? If they don't keep aspirating, then it could be an isolated event of aspiration within the range of normal. If you look in these articles and the tables, you'll see some people aspirate three, four, and five times over the study protocol, which was about, I can't remember now, I think it was about 36 boluses that we gave in the, in the protocol. In a typical fees exam that I do with patients, I don't know how many times they swallow, but it's going to be close to the equivalent of a mill if they're not grossly aspirating, you know, or we're worried about aspiration to the point that we do need to stop the exam, certainly. And we have not been able to find a head tuck or a chin, you know, chin tuck or a head turn that will alleviate that. So the questions are going back to the original article that I referenced with Langmore, what are the predictors of pneumonia? 
is that patient at risk for pneumonia for those things? Are they a walkie-talkie? Yeah. Can they cough? Do they have a new diagnosis that would keep them from being able to walk? I think walking is a huge thing. We have my last, the last probably 10 years, I've done more outpatients. And those head and neck cancer patients, they can aspirate a lot. Yeah. And they don't get pneumonia. Yeah. I mean, some of them do. Don't get me wrong. I hate, I should be careful my sweeping generalities, but I'm amazed. I am really amazed. Now, how long can they keep doing that before they do get pneumonia? I don't know. But I know it can be on the course of years and years that they can tolerate some aspiration. Mm-hmm. So let me back you up. So you were talking about, you know, some of the healthy normals just aspirated on on one swallow, some were four or five. Could any of those been attributed, any of those ones attributed to like the first swallow phenomenon? Did you guys keep track of if it was the first swallow or if it just was one swallow across the entire study? That's a great question. In healthy adults, I know like clinically, I've always thought about that and seen that to some degree. In healthy adults, we did not statistically look at that. However, subjectively, since I was the one who has been the clinician on all the fees for the study, I can tell you my perception is that it just happened okay. at any point in time. I definitely did not pick up on a trend enough to even look at that statistically. Okay. But we haven't looked at that statistically. Okay. I think that always, I always like get excited or giddy when I like see first swallow aspiration that I'm like, oh, I wonder. And then it, it'll be wild if they don't aspirate the whole rest of the study, you know, mm-hmm. that it actually mm-hmm. does have some merit to it. Right, right. So the whole, I guess, kind of milk thing versus the water, we're thinking it's more of a sensory issue than, you know, I know you were talking about maybe the caveat that we are missing some water, but if we're going back to just milk versus water, it could potentially be a sensory issue with milk. It could. It could be a different sensory motor loop with milk than water, uh, just because of the receptor's Potentially, some of the receptors are different that are being stimulated with water versus milk. That's crazy. Have you Mm -hmm. talked to any, I guess, I'm not sure what profession would even know anything about that. Yes, I have talked to some PhD level nutritionists and dietitians. I've also talked to some people in rheology and food science. There we go. State University. And everybody just kind of scratches their head. (laughs) Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) That's a good question, but we don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that's about as far as it's gotten. So uh, anyway. All right. So Susan, let me ask you. So it seems like some of these studies are showing a higher percentage of healthy normals aspirating than some of the other studies that we've seen published. You have anything there? What do you think? That is also a great question. I think there's several things behind it. First of all, the normal studies that were done in the beginning, back in the earlier days, they were all video fluoro for starters. And so originally people were only testing one in three ml bolus volumes, maybe a five ml bolus volume. And maybe even a few years after that, maybe they were doing 10 ml. Woohoo, 10 ml. We now know that the normal bolus volume when people self-administer boluses is around 20 ml. So that's a much larger bolus volume than what researchers were originally testing with. And I think they were using that with normals is because that's what they were using with their patients. So I think that's probably one of the first reasons is because we do have a handful of early papers looking at normals, but they were only testing small bolus volumes. And we clearly have seen a bolus volume effect in all of our papers and then in some other people's papers as well 
where 10 and 20 ml are significantly more likely to yield an aspiration event than 5 and 10 ml. So that's probably a big piece of it. The second thing is, is just video fluoro. Most of the normative studies have used video fluoro and not fees. And it's a time-limited exam for starters because of the radiation. And so they simply can't give as many boluses as we can give in a fees study. So we have the opportunity to see more. In our study, I think what we had published in the last protocol, I think it was 36 boluses. But that's just what we published. We actually did quite a few more boluses than that. We just have not analyzed that data yet. Looking at soy milk, actually, versus cow milk. Yes, and almond milk and some other boluses. So that's just the advantage of doing fees is that you have more opportunity to do more boluses. The other thing is simply the viscosity and the use of barium versus using real food. So if you look on the website for Verabar and look at the viscosity, which is the thickness of a liquid, for the thin liquid Verabar, it's under 15 centipoise for that barium. And so milk, the maximum viscosity of milk is around three centipoise. And that's much thinner than liquid barium that says under 15, if, the, if 14 was there, you know, if it could be 14. Yeah. So I think if there could be a viscosity difference, even though the thin barium looks thin, it's still not as thin as milk and it's still not as thin as water, which is around one centipoise. Okay. So it could be a viscosity issue as well, where we're simply testing a thinner liquid than what they're testing on the barium studies. The other possibility is that sensory motor loop I was telling you about. There may be a different sensory motor loop on barium versus water and milk. Water and milk being real food substance and barium being a non-real food substance. So those are just a few of the things. And then, of course, you have your whole resolution issues with you know, modified barium swallow studies that you don't have with as much with fees. Yeah. So the other thing that I found very intriguing is when I was going back and reading all the studies that had been conducted on healthy adults, they had just about every single study reported at least one person aspirated. But because that wasn't in the realm of what could be considered normal, they wrote them off as outliers or they must have accidentally gotten through the screening of what a you know healthy person is supposed to be and had some kind of underlying neurological issue that had gone undetected or had not been diagnosed yet. But literally in almost every normative study, at least one person has aspirated. That's crazy. And so I think it just got written off. Yeah. You know, fluke when actually it was probably just the range of normal. Yeah. Imagine if we went back in and threw them back in the loop, what we would come up with. Exactly. And then that's the other thing that I do like to clarify for people when they're looking at these articles that we have done. Our healthy cohort, we, first of all, we screen them extremely carefully for all the neurological things or mechanical things that could be related to a swallowing disorder. But if they even had restless leg syndrome, we excluded them because that was a potential neurologic something, you know. So these healthy participants that were in this line of research studies, they were your super healthy. These are the, <laughs> the seniors who volunteer for research studies. They're, you know, walking them all in their little track suits three times a week. I mean, they kind of bebop into the clinic and bebop out. They are not your frail older adult. So yeah. if anything, we have, you know, the healthy of the healthy right. adult. right. Like the athletes of the... Yes, of the senior citizen world. Yeah, yeah. So just a few things. I think, you know, like you said, there's a weight, no pun intended, in 
doing the larger bolus volumes. And I know even today I had a guy that, you know, I went through my whole protocol and there was no aspiration. And I said to the SLP, you know, what are you thinking? What, what was going on here? And she said, no, no, no. She's like, let's let him chug. And I said, okay. And so I gave him the cup and she said, every time he drinks the way he normally does, he takes these huge Mm -hmm. boluses and he coughs all over the place. So I handed him the cup and of course he just went to chug town and coughed and spit all over the place, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think it's a lot of SLPs. I don't, they don't want to go off of their protocol, but the larger volume should be part of their protocol, you know, Mm -hmm. letting these patients that are independently feeding themselves, feed themselves on the study. Absolutely. It's, I know it's a little awkward with the scope and patients sitting in bed sometimes and everything, but if they're going to feed themselves for mealtime, that really should be part of every protocol. If they are going to be put on a diet and they're not going to have the recommendation of MPO, then yes, that should be a part of the fees if at all possible. Yeah. Yeah. And if you are looking for a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies, please check out our sponsor, EndoHD. It can be a cased portable system as well as a carded system, depending on your needs. Additionally, EndoHD representatives can help clinicians set up their fees program. So contact them at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. They combine cutting-edge technology with clinician-inspired devices and phenomenal customer service to make the best imaging devices in the country. So again, www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. And talking about your studies that you did, you know, 36 boluses across the whole study, were most of those patients aspirating towards the end of it, or did you keep track of kind of when in the study they were aspirating? I know I asked you about first follow phenomenon, but... Mm-hmm. You know, I think yeah. like we were talking about the advantage with fees is that we can go as long as we need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that again is a great question. And you could review journal articles because one of our reviewers brought up that question too. Oh, in, good. In article. Yes. <laughs> could there be a fatigue component? And again, we have not statistically looked at a early aspiration effect or a late aspiration effect due to fatigue. We did not statistically look at that. Again, this is just my clinical perception as I was going through the exam, to me, I couldn't put any, I hate to use the word random, but it really seemed random to me. Like sometimes they aspirated, sometimes they didn't. And I didn't notice, I didn't appreciate a fatigue effect. Okay. So at this point, it is so not on my radar after having done, let's see, if you look across all the healthy adults, I've done about 300 healthy adults. That's not on my radar to need to look at it statistically, but we've probably should just to rule that out as a possibility. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that's a huge, I guess, disagreement in our field. I feel like there's some people that believe that their patients, you know, fatigue and aspirate within five, 10 minutes of the meal. And then we mm-hmm. do have some studies that show that fatigue really isn't, can't be attributed mm-hmm. to it. So I think mm-hmm. that's a huge issue that we do need to learn more about. Right. Well, and one of the things that I love about fees is, is that there's no point in guessing. If you think they might fatigue, just keep testing. Yeah. Just keep testing. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Don't get ever guess about what diet you should put a patient on. Keep the scope in there and keep testing as long as it, you know, is safe and appropriate until you know exactly what diet you feel comfortable recommending. Yeah. I think the more that I do fees, the more I kind of see these more either reflux attributed or esophageal Mm. disorders, you know, where 10 minutes into the study, all of a sudden we're regurgitating everything, you know, and if if we weren't doing an actual study, an SLP at the bedside might just say, oh, they're fatiguing now and 
that's why they're coughing everything up, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think we've Mm -hmm. got to be able to separate that fatigue issue from what could be a reflux or, you know, Yes, yes, absolutely. I love modified barium swallow studies, but that's one of the beauties of fees is that you do see the effects of reflux back up into the hypopharynx. And that can get prandial aspiration could be blamed incorrectly when it actually is refluxate aspiration or causing the coughing or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I had a guy a few weeks ago that it was after about five, six minutes, everything just came back up and he aspirated all of it, you know? So Mm -hmm. I just, the wife was just shocked. Like that's what he does every meal. And I was like, well, it's not what's going down. It's what's coming back up that's causing all of it. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So which paper was this, Susan, the factors influencing aspiration during swallowing in healthy older adults? That one was just the healthy older adults of the big cohort of 203. Okay. Because we were seeing this aspiration in these healthy older adults, we wanted to get that. So we had run the older adults. Most of the older adults finished running through the study protocol first. And then we were still running the 20 to 30, the 30 to 40, the 40 to 50s, you know. And so we had not finished running all those people through the study, but we had all of the older adults. So we went ahead and published that. But then when we published this article in 2018, it has everybody. So it includes that study. And we even mentioned in that that, you know, we had previously published a small cohort of the big cohort. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. And then, so what are the effects of aspiration status, liquid type, and bolus volume on pharyngeal peak pressure in healthy older Mm -hmm. adults? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. So in that study, we were doing simultaneous fees and pharyngeal manometry. Okay. And... What we were looking for in that study is to look at why some of these healthy older adults may be aspirating. And so what we found was that the aspirators did have lower pharyngeal peak pressure than the non-aspirators. So that would suggest some functional atrophy that could be contributing in the range of normal as to why some of these healthy adults are aspirating. Interesting. Do do you have any idea what could have contributed to that or just? Well, I think it could be multifaceted. Joanne Robbins has done a great job of talking about sarcopenia and introducing that concept into our field. I think the question is, is why are some people more susceptible to the sarcopenia than others? It does not appear that some of these healthy adult aspirators have any kind of neurological issue, but for some reason, because they've been thoroughly screened for that, uh, but for some reason, they do demonstrate lower pharyngeal pressures with swallowing. And then also, when we had looked at tongue strength in one of our previous articles, and as we saw in an article that we published called Isometric and Swallowing Tongue Strength in Healthy Adults, That was published in 2013. We found that older adult males and aspirators had less swallowing tongue pressures than non-aspirators in females, older females. So I think right there we have two kind of strength studies, if you will, that are speaking to that there is some kind of deconditioning that these people who are aspirating are exhibiting. The other thing that one of my colleagues who had published, who's more of a basic scientist, we had done some CT studies together, and she looked at the genohyoid musculature of the aspirators versus the non-aspirators. And via CT scan, she reported that there was more genohyoid atrophy among the older men. And in all four of our studies, it was the older men that were more likely to demonstrate aspiration than even the women. 
So that's just totally wild. Mm -hmm. So for some reason, men that are older over the age of 70 are, some of them are showing more sarcopenia than, or I shouldn't say, well, according to the CT scan, it is sarcopenia, but then we're seeing decreased functional pressures in the pharynx and also in the oral cavity. Wow. So would you still consider them within the realm of healthy normals or would you consider that an impairment? I would definitely say it's in the range of normal because at this stage, they are considered healthy adults. There's nothing in their medical history. We also did many mental status examinations on these individuals. We looked at hand grip strength. We did walking speeds. Oh, we did the digit span test. These people were tested up and down and all around. Crazy. And they are totally in the range of normal. We did look to see if maybe walking speed could be and hand grip strength might be correlated with aspiration status, and it was not. So there's nothing that you could do looking at these people right now that would classify them anything other than healthy adults. Crazy. Is there a, so in either of those studies, either the IOB study or the manometry study, was there a specific number that was the cutoff for what was considered weak or when it was correlated or associated with? There was a difference in the cutoff, if you will, so to speak, between aspirators and non-aspirators in their pharyngeal peak pressures. So we had, we used a solid state manometric catheter. So we had a sensor behind the tongue and another sensor a little bit lower in the pharynx. And for the upper sensor, which is the one posterior to the tongue, the aspirators had a mean pressure of 58 millimeters of mercury, and the non-aspirators had 101 millimeters of mercury. So almost twice the strength wow. behind the tongue. And then a little bit lower in the pharynx, the difference wasn't quite as remarkable. Uh, the mean for the aspirators was 105 millimeters of mercury. And for the non-aspirators, it was 123 millimeters of mercury. Definitely see some numerical differences. For the tongue strength, we did not use that OOP. We used the K-Pentax swallowing workstation because we can run the tongue strength signal simultaneously with the endoscopic swallow studies that we're doing at times. But for the aspirators, the swallowing tongue strength was significantly lower in the aspirators versus the non-aspirators at the anterior and the posterior tongue locations. So the aspirators had 270 millimeters mercury pressure, whereas the non-aspirators had 317. And for the posterior tongue, it was 220 for the aspirators and 267 as a mean for the non-aspirators. Crazy. So, mm -hmm. so clinically, turn on your clinic, your clinician brain right now. Yes. Would that lead you to believe that tongue strengthening has a lot more to do with aspiration than pharyngeal pressure would? So first of all, there's a difference between functional reserve and swallowing pressures. So for example, when we were looking at isometric tongue strength, so how hard the aspirators could press versus the non-aspirators, it's very similar what their functional reserve is, but what they're actually recruiting and swallowing is different. So whether or not working on tongue strengthening will help in this situation, I, I don't know, because they have pretty much the same functional reserve as the non-aspirators do. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. They're just not recruiting it the same. Yeah. So doing lingual resistance exercises might not do a darn thing for them. It might not. It may. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. I know. In fact, we proposed a study to look at that. Yeah. Um, it did not get funded. 
Ah! We, I know, but we wanted to see if we could reverse these aspirators into non-aspirators. But a good argument for that was is that there does not appear to be any pulmonary adverse effect for these aspirators. So that leads me into something that I think would be good to mention in the podcast, and that is we did really want to know, do these healthy older adult aspirators, are they more likely for adverse pulmonary outcome? We were funded to do 50 CT scans of the lungs of the same cohort that we had published on the 203 older adults. But so of that, we were able to select 50, 50 aspirators and 50 non-aspirators to come back and participate in the CT scans. And so a radiologist who was accredited for thoracic imaging analyzed the CT scans for things like bronchiectasis, air trapping, airway debris, bronchial wall thickening, anything that could be potentially related to aspiration was on the list of things that he could check. And they used a consensus rating if there was questions about a finding. To make a long story short, there was no statistical significance in lung findings between the aspirators and the non-aspirators. So that study indicates that there's no chronic long-term effects at this stage in the people who are aspirating. The other thing that we did, and this is not published, but we were using it kind of as pilot data for a grant that we were writing at the time, is we did a survey, a phone survey. We went back and got IRB, which is Institutional Review Board approval, to call all the participants and ask them had they had a pneumonia. And so it was just self-reported pneumonia over the last five years. And there was no difference between the aspirators and the non-aspirators. I think we had four pneumonias reported in the non-aspirators and three in the aspirators. So there did not appear to be, just in this very non-published, unscientific way of doing a self-reported pneumonia, did not appear to be any greater rate of pneumonia in the aspirators than the non-aspirators. So it didn't appear to be any pulmonary consequence to the aspiration. The other thing we did is we did do a, a study in the scintigraphy suite. So we put a radionuclide tracer in the milk and performed a fees exam in nine of our aspirators, which we called back to have them repeat their fees exam in nine non-aspirators that we called back. And so they did their fees protocol. Sure enough, all the aspirators who had aspirated before aspirated again, and all the non-aspirators who had not aspirated originally did not aspirate during the scintigraphy exam. But the reason we did the scintigraphy exam is we looked for the tracer in the lungs 30 minutes after we had observed aspiration on fees. And in all of the aspirators who had, again, aspirated during that study, we did not see any tracer in any of the lungs of the participants. So that indicated that perhaps the ciliary action where maybe they were coughing in that 30 minutes, like while they were sitting in the waiting room waiting to come back and have their lungs scanned for the radionuclide tracer, that somehow or another these healthy adults are clearing this aspirate. Either they cough later when they're well out of our view, so we didn't tag them as an audible aspirator, or the ciliary action just moves it up and out. I don't know. Cool. That's so fascinating. Yeah. So I think at this point, we don't know if these people who are aspirating, if they never develop a neurological insult, if they are more likely to develop a pulmonary adverse outcome. It doesn't appear to from what we have been able to investigate so far, but obviously there would need to be more studies yeah. you know, that are more comprehensive to look at that. Yeah. I think what's so fascinating about this is we look for the smallest thing wrong as SLPs and then we want to fix it. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's like you said, it's we've we're learning so much more about the range and it's not black and white anymore. And mm-hmm. I had a patient about I think it was last week that she'd been on thickened liquids for a while and no one could figure out why she'd been on thickened liquids. There was no pneumonia history. There was no modified done, no nothing. So we did the fees, no aspiration. Everything looked good. And the SLP said, well, I think she has a really weak tongue. You know, even just having her do just oral motor exercises, her tongue just seemed to move slower. And I said, I don't think that's an issue. You know, I think she was like 89 years old or something. You know, I was like, I don't think that's an issue. She's not aspirating. Nothing is, Mm -hmm. it's not impacting anything. She's never had a pneumonia. She's like, well, Mm -hmm. I think we should do exercises anyways for it. Mm -hmm. And part of me was just thinking, I don't think that's a good idea. And I also think that could be almost a waste of healthcare dollars to be thinking that we have an impairment. And we, you know, I just don't know how she was planning to justify that that was necessary mm-hmm. to possibly prevent pneumonia in the future when she didn't really appear to have any risk factors for it. You know, that is such an interesting patient case study or description because when we originally went into this and we're seeing some of these aspirators versus non-aspirators, before we had done the CT studies, before we had done the scintigraphy studies and seen no pulmonary adverse outcomes and done the self-reported pneumonia, that was my mindset. I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, if we see decreased swallowing strength and we see trace, of course, I was thinking, you know, if they have aspiration, let's put them in swallowing rehab, you know, and senior, you know, oropharyngeal strengthening programs, you know, but so far that doesn't seem indicated. But who knows? I think we have a lot more to go. We do. We just keep Mm -hmm. finding more and more Mm -hmm. questions. Yes. (laughs) All right. Is there anything else you want to talk about, Susan? Well, I think where we are at this stage is that we have clearly seen that the range of normal swallowing is broader than what we had originally seen published. What to do with that is to take each patient one by one and make sure you're thoroughly testing in a fees making sure you're challenging the patient, potentially fatiguing them. If you only see an isolated event of aspiration, it may be just their pre-morbid ability. One of the things that had struck me in my in clinical care was that if I had a patient who had gone through a fees exam and only aspirated a trace amount one time, and I have documented in my report that this person has aspirated, was I being remiss as a clinician recommending they have a full range of liquids and eat unrestricted. If this patient did go on to develop a pneumonia, could I be liable? Because I had identified aspiration and then not change their diet. So I think that's what this research can help support the clinician, is that we now see this can be the range of normal, and it gives hopefully the clinician some empowerment to make that clinical decision to go ahead and allow, give a little more latitude when you do see a little bit of aspiration in a patient who is at low risk for the development of pneumonia, given the predictors of pneumonia that we know. I love that. That was great. Yeah. Thank you. All right. (laughs) So one final question. I ask everybody this question. So you talked about the clinical work that inspired your research, but is there a particular research paper or researcher that has inspired your work or has made a big impact on your work? Wow. Mm, that almost makes, that question almost makes me teary. Um, it does. I feel so indebted and so thankful for the thought leaders in our field. I'm afraid if I start naming people that I will leave somebody out because, oh my goodness, there's just the dysphagia research society. If for the clinicians who can go, it is such an opportunity to go hear these people present who are doing research 
and who are just devoting their their research labs to, to research. So it's hard to give a name. I'm indebted and so thankful to everyone at this major research society and also just the clinicians that I've worked alongside of. Back to my colleagues that we used to love talking about uh, milk and water and one of my good colleagues and friends, Lisa Markley, who she is just a, a thought leader. She doesn't have a doctoral degree, but she is a thought leader in swallowing disorders and has just been great to always bounce ideas off of and to teach me things and, and talk about things. So there's just so many people. As I said, I did mention Lisa, but I'd hate to mention anybody because I'm afraid I'm going to leave somebody out. That's so. okay. That's okay. I, th- I think that's great. I know there's so many clinicians that are like, what's dysphagia research society? So look into it because it's not just for researchers. That's, That's right. what I, I try to tell these people that work and whoever you are that works at DRS, get the word out that it's for clinicians too, because I think a lot of people think it's just for researchers, but I know I always right. enjoy myself when I go there too. So I do too. Yeah. And also the pre-conference to Dysphagia Research Society is a little bit more, tends to be a little bit more clinically driven. So that can be you know a good place for clinicians as well. But even long before I went back to get my doctoral degree, I was going to Dysphagia Research Society and writing little things in my, the margins and the notes of potential clinical applications. So I love that. All right. Well, thanks so much, Susan. This has been so wonderful. Yes, yes. Thank you. Again, I really appreciate you allowing me the opportunity to talk about, you know, the clinical implications of this work. And I love that you are doing a podcast. I think that is great. Yeah, You're it's been so fun. Push, pushing this field ahead. I I'm love trying. it. I'm trying. I'm trying to throw everybody into it. So yeah, <laughs> that's All right. good. All right. Well, thank you so much again, Susan. Thank you. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.